Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brokemarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit the Alachua County home of Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings, author of The Yearling and Cross Creek. She could only write here. This was really her place of inspiration. We'll discuss the St. Augustine Yacht Club, if you were a member of the elite class of, of St. Augustine Society, you were probably a member of this club at one point. And talk about the Winter Park Advocate African American newspaper. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Why did I choose you? What did I see in you? I saw the heart you had so That's Barbara Streisand singing a song from the Broadway musical production of the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings book, The Yearling. The show had only three performances in 1965, but every other version of the story was highly successful. The Yearling was the best-selling book of 1938 and won the Pulitzer Prize the following year. An Oscar-nominated film version was made in 1946, and the book was adapted for television in 1994. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings wrote The Yearling and almost all of her important work from the front porch of her Florida home. A visit to the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Historic State Park in the rural community of Cross Creek is like a trip back in time to the 1930s. The home there is furnished just as Rawlings had it when she was writing her Pulitzer Prize-winning novel The Yearling, her autobiography Cross Creek, and other works depicting the lives of Florida crackers. Rawlings' typewriter and notes sit on a table on the front porch, along with her ashtray and a pack of Lucky Strike cigarettes, as if the writer has just gotten up to get a glass of iced tea from the kitchen. Each room of the house contains furniture and personal items that belong to Rawlings or are very similar to what the beloved Florida writer owned. Carrie Todd is park ranger at Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Historic State Park. She always described it as a rambling farmhouse, um, Maybe a little shabby chic is the way to talk about it. It's white with green lattice on the bottom, and it's got th it's 3,000 square feet, four bedrooms, two bathrooms, so it's large, but it doesn't seem large. It seems just sort of rambling when you're trying to go through it. Although famous for her stories about rural life in Florida, Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings was not a native. 
She was born in Washington, D.C. and attended college at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, graduating in 1918. She lived in Louisville, Kentucky and Rochester, New York before moving to Florida with her husband, Charles Rawlings, in 1928. The couple planned to support themselves with the orange trees on their property, allowing them to write in a beautiful, serene, rural setting. They were both writers. They both were going to write novels, and they thought it was going to be an easy time to make money with that citrus crop. You know, just, oh, it'll grow itself. They won't have to do much. And it was a booming industry then, so they thought they were going to strike it big and then have all this time to write, which, of course, wasn't the case, but Marjorie seemed to do pretty well. Growing citrus was a lot more work than the couple had anticipated. Charles Rawlings grew tired of life in the country, and the two were divorced. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings felt a connection to her Florida land and stayed there to write. Marjorie walked through the rusty old gate and immediately fell in love. The book Cross Creek she often describes as like a love story to a place. But Charles Rawlings, I think, had a completely different idea about what this was going to be. He thought he was going to be a gentleman farmer, uh, where Marjorie saw charm in the sort of rusticness. He saw the lack of paint and the lack of screens and the lack of electricity and the lack of running water. And he hadn't been as successful as a writer, even for the magazines that he was trying to publish. So when Marjorie hit it big, you know, he maybe was a little jealous and, you know, things weren't working out as well for him. Rawlings first attempted to write gothic romance novels, but could not interest publishers in her work. Literary editor Maxwell Perkins was fascinated with Rawlings' letters and stories about her life in rural Florida and encouraged her to write a novel about that. Maxwell Perkins, the editor of Genius, as some people call him, saw one little story called Cracker Chitlins in Scribner's Magazine and knew that Marjorie was on to something, that she had this really great talent, and he got her to, you know, take the notes and the little bits she had been writing down ever since she first stepped into Florida and turn it into a book, um, The Yearling particularly, but she has eight novels and 26 short stories about Florida. So she had a lot of material to work with, and he definitely helped shape those stories into the greatness that they are. Rawlings' most popular book, The Yearling, won the Pulitzer Prize for Literature in 1939 and was made into a very successful film starring Gregory Peck and Jane Wyman in 1946. Her 1942 autobiography, Cross Creek, was adapted for a 1983 film starring Mary Steenburgen. Rawlings wrote many other stories about life in Florida. Florence Turcott is literary manuscripts archivist at the University of Florida Special Collections. She began with the encouragement of her editor, Maxwell Perkins, of Charles Scribner's Sons, a extensive career basing her literary imagination and focusing her, her efforts on stories about the Cracker people. She began by publishing a collection of uh, vignettes called Cracker Chidlings and um, continued with, very successfully along that same vein with a, um, her first novel, which was called South Moon Under, which is based literally on visits and time that she spent living with people in the Ocala National Forest, in the Big Scrub, as she called it, um, and characterized their lives and their struggles in these very compelling stories, which were very successful. Not everyone was pleased with Rawlings' work. Zelma Kaysen, a Cross Creek resident who was described by Rawlings in unflattering terms, sued the writer for invasion of privacy, eventually winning $1 in damages. 
Marjorie Rawlings used the real names of uh, her friends and neighbors in her semi-autobiographical book, Cross Creek, which was published in 1942. In this particular case, Zelma Kaysen, who Marjorie considered a very close friend of hers, she sued Marjorie for originally for libel and then kind of morphed into an invasion of privacy charge that was leveled against Marjorie for the characterization of her Zelma in Cross Creek as an ageless spinster who resembles a canary. She was a diminutive person. She was lively, and Marjorie thought that that was a good characterization of her. Um, in addition to the remarks about her physical appearance and her marital status, there was also reference to her propensity to use profanity, and all of which of these allegations Zelma took grave umbrage to. <laughs> so her charges were leveled um, quickly, soon after the book was published, and they engaged in a legal battle, which took more than five years to resolve and which ended in a Florida Supreme Court ruling finding in favor of the plaintiff, in favor of Kaysen, but awarding damages of $1. So Rawlings was devastated by this outcome, not because of the financial burden, but because of the lack of vote of confidence that was implied by the negative ruling. And of course, Kaysen was disappointed in that she received no compensation for her trouble. After the trial, Rawlings was so upset by the outcome that she never wrote about Florida again. At the outcome of the trial, she was very discouraged and vowed never to write about Florida again. And in fact, she never did publish anything set until she died in 1953, there was never anything else published about Florida. She was writing her novel, The Sojourner, which was set in the Midwest uh, at the time. And um, when she died, she had just finished writing The Sojourner. So, so indeed, she made good on her promise not to write about Florida again. Maxwell Perkins worked with Ernest Hemingway and F. Scott Fitzgerald, among others, but Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings' best literary friend was Zora Neale Hurston. Carrie Todd. Yes, she was visited by Zora Neale Hurston, and they both bonded over uh, what they called picture talk, or the rich, thick descriptions of life here in Florida. Of course, Zora is a famous Florida writer, and Marjorie is a famous Florida writer, and so they had a lot to really talk about. Um, but Marjorie knew a lot of famous writers through uh, Maxwell Perkins particularly, but through the big writing scene, the 20s and 30s. Rawlings' maid, Idella Parker, wrote a book about her experience working for Rawlings called Idella, Marjorie Rawlings' Perfect Maid. Idella was the woman who worked for her probably the longest uh, as a maid and was a fascinating woman in her own right. She didn't start writing books until she was in her 70s and she went on a huge lecture circuit after she wrote those. She was active in the Rawlings Society, you know, and did a lot of really fabulous things on her own. And they definitely had a almost an equal relationship, which was interesting for the time being a black woman and a white woman. So it was it's neat that she also got some, I guess, literary credit for the time she spent with Marjorie. A visit to the Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings house provides a unique view of both life in old Florida and the life of one of the state's most loved writers. 
So people come for a lot of different reasons. We get a lot of people who love Marjorie Rawlings, of course. They're making a pilgrimage of some kind. We have a lot of people that come because this is old Florida. You know, it's we've really tried to preserve Florida from the 1920s and 30s. You know, we dress in period costume. We have chickens and ducks running around. And the best compliment I can get is, oh, you remind me so much of my grandmother. So we get those people. And then we get people who are just driving down the highway looking for something really cool to see. And they see our sign and they stop by. And school children, because Marjorie is, of course, a great Floridian. They study her in fourth grade. They study her in eighth grade. And so we try to get as many school kids out here as we can. In 1941, Rawlings married Norton Baskin, living in both the St. Augustine area and Cross Creek. He operated the Castle Warden Hotel. It's now the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum, so you can go still see it. And uh, she did live in St. Augustine with him most of the time and came back to Cross Creek to write. She could only write here. This was really her place of inspiration. The Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings House is located in Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings Historic State Park on County Road 325 in Hawthorne, Florida. Gotta go away, Frank. Gotta go away and never come back. You've grown up now. Gotta go out and find yourself a doe. Can't all live together like a plan. You've been bad. Stop meaning to be. You can make out by yourself, can't you? You'll be all right. You're smart. Besides, I don't don't care for you no more. You ain't cute like you used to be when you was little. That's right. You go now. Ain't nobody got any use for you around here anymore. Go on, you hear me? You go. There ain't nothing more I can do to save you. Go on. You gotta get killed, you say, around here. Get out of my head and shoot you. And don't you ever go back. Don't you ever. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Visit us online at myfloridahistory.org to register for the Florida Historical Society 2020 Caribbean Conference Cruise with stops and tours in Puerto Rico, St. Thomas, and Grand Turk. Paper presentations and roundtable discussions on a wide range of Florida history topics will take place aboard the Carnival Breeze. More information at myfloridahistory.org slash cruise. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. Ben, in the late 19th century, St. Augustine had a yacht club with some pretty elite members. Yeah, that's right, Ben. The St. Augustine Yacht Club was formed in 1874, and it was actually the first yacht club in the state of Florida. And a yacht, I mean, the term yacht essentially means a boat that was designed, built, and used for recreational purposes. So these were pleasure craft. And in the 19th century, these were sailing craft. In the 20th century, they evolved into boats that were powered by either gas and sometimes electric engines. But um, but primarily the early yacht club owners and those who were members of the club were using their personal sailing yachts. 
And the point, at least, or the original intent of the organization was to get together, talk about, learn about, and educate its members on different boat building practices. They always wanted to go faster. So it was all about designing the fastest, lightest, sleekest yachts that they could devise. But they were also teaching others about sailing, about sailing tactics. And the third component was really more of a social component. Now, as you said before, there were some very elite members, and it included all of the elite members of St. Augustine's, at least winter society, after the Civil War. And it really represents the evolution of St. Augustine's history from a military garrison in the 16th century up to the territorial period when it was kind of the center of East Florida politics during the late colonial period. And then here in the what we call the Gilded Age period in Florida's history, it became a winter resort for some of the wealthiest uh, financiers and industrialists in America at the time. They spent time in St. Augustine, and that included Henry Flagler. Henry Flagler was one of the earliest members and and raced his yachts regularly with the Yacht Club, but also uh, folks like uh, Louis Comfort Tiffany, the noted glass designer. He was fairly famous in the 1880s, and he's listed in the roles in 1883 as bringing his yacht down here in the wintertime. So really, if you were a member of the elite class of, of St. Augustine Society, you were probably a member of this club at one point. And you have here some original documents from the early days of the St. Augustine Yacht Club. Yeah, I just grabbed kind of an example of what we have. We have a really huge collection of early documents that tell the story of the Yacht Club's origins and their kind of the heyday in the beginning of the 20th century. And these are actually all part of a larger collection called the A.M. Taylor Papers. And Taylor was involved in the Alcazar Hotel. He had worked throughout St. Augustine in various capacities. He later became a state senator in the Florida legislature, but he was a prominent member of St. Augustine Society, and, and he collected all of this material. And it includes a lot of ephemeral material. If we're looking uh, here at the first set of documents, we have some newspaper clippings. We have invitations to regattas and galas. In fact, we actually have the first powerboat races that were held by the Yacht Club in 1908. We have several of those pamphlets that would have been handed out to to invite people to come and watch the, the powerboat races, which were quite a novel thing in 1908. But we're also looking at this really interesting metal box. This is a, at the time, they considered it a fireproof box. And on the, the label on the front says, St. Augustine Yacht Club Record. And inside are all of these folded up yellowed pieces of paper and included in this stack is the original charter, or at least a copy of the original charter. This was a copy from 1888. The organization formed in 1874, but it didn't incorporate until 1877. So here we're looking at an act to incorporate the St. Augustine Yacht Club, approved February 13th, 1877. And on the second page, we have the original seal from the Secretary of State, who was Crawford at the time, and it's dated 1888. So we have an original copy of that. We also have some small printed books. This is a list of members in the season of 1906-1907, and listed on the first page under the lifetime members is Henry Flagler. There were only four other lifetime members, but that included Henry Flagler at the time. Again, you can run through the names and see all of the wealthiest people in America were, if they were wintering in St. Augustine, they were probably a member of the club. And not all of them actually owned yachts or, or were involved in racing. It was that social component. So the the club itself had its own building. They held these really elaborate galas and and events throughout the winter season. So it was really the place to go if you were in St. Augustine in the winter of late 19th, early 20th century. Does the St. Augustine Yacht Club still exist today? Yeah, it does, actually. And now the, the scope of its mission has certainly evolved over time. 
it was no longer the Gilded Age sort of elite who met to talk about yacht design and this and that. That group really disbanded in 1939. So just prior to the Second World War, the St. Augustine Yacht Club ceased to exist. But it wasn't until 1978 that a new St. Augustine Yacht Club was formed and entered into a partnership with the city of St. Augustine. They cater at least more to the public, and they offer a lot of sailing lessons to those who are interested in learning how to sail. But the focus is still on this long-running maritime heritage that St. Augustine is connected to in understanding and and using watercraft around the the waterways of St. Augustine in different ways. Great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure. Thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. If you'd like to see the documents we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. This is Florida Frontiers. Holly Baker is Public History Coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and Manager of the Brevard Museum of History and Natural Science. She has this report on Gus Henderson, founder of the Winter Park Advocate newspaper. I recently talked to Dr. Julian Chambliss, professor of English and core faculty in the Consortium for Critical Diversity in a Digital Age Research, or CEDAR, at Michigan State University. He told me about Gus Henderson, the owner and editor of the Advocate newspaper in Winter Park, Florida. In the late 1800s, Floridian Gus Henderson fought for the rights of Winter Park's African-American citizens and strongly advocated for the founding of the city of Winter Park and the inclusion of Hannibal Square. As Julian Chambliss explains, before gaining political and social influence in Winter Park as a newspaper publisher and community activist, Henderson had a humble and difficult childhood in Lake City, Florida. Gus Henderson, Gus C. Henderson, was indeed born in Columbia County near Lake City on and around November 16th, 1862. He grew up there till about the age of 20. His mother died at a very young age. He was about 10 when she passed away. And we don't know very much about his father. So at a very young age, he was sort of orphaned, but he managed to work and and sustain himself. And we know that he, from his own accounts, his own sort of description of his childhood, that he was a very avid reader, craved knowledge, wanted to improve himself. Gus Henderson tried his hand at being a farmer, but soon became a successful salesman instead. Even though he was notably good at his job, His time as a traveling salesman didn't last long. This is actually one of the sort of defining elements of the narrative about himself. He was a traveling salesman and was very successful. It's not clear that they knew he was black when they hired him. And he was doing a very good job. But his white counterparts complained about him and the firm uh, let him go. They did give him the honor of saying he was the best salesman that they had. But he did lose his job basically because his white counterparts were jealous of his success. Which, of course, very much dovetails with um, some of the elements uh, that we know so well around anti-black violence in this pivotal period. 
1886, Gus Henderson left Columbia County and headed to Winter Park, Florida, near Orlando, to the area that would later become known as Hannibal Square. In 1887, Henderson encouraged the African-American residents of Hannibal Square to support Loring Chase and Oliver Chapman, who advocated for the incorporation of Winter Park and Hannibal Square as one city. Gus's very industrial nature comes to the fore, and he founds a publishing company, a general printing company, that does printing and publishing. And he's also very involved in local politics. In the 1880s, if you're in Florida and you're a black person, most likely you're a Republican, right? You're, it's Republican politics. In 1889, during the racially hostile post-Reconstruction era, Henderson published the first issue of the Winter Park Advocate. The newspaper was one of two black-owned newspapers in Florida. It was the only newspaper in town, and it served both the black and white communities. Julian Chambliss. Gus Henderson starts to print a newspaper called the Winter Park Advocate. And at the time that he starts printing it, I think part of the, the logic about him printing it is that he was reading the Locksmead and writing these op-eds, and the Locksmead was like a kind of weekly that was not doing a good job, right? Like, they clearly weren't reporting this sort of black experience in an effective way. So in 1889, he creates a newspaper called the Winter Park Advocate. He does not start out as the editor. He starts out as the publisher, but very quickly becomes the editor and I think primary writer. But he's also the business manager for the Eatonville Speaker, which is another newspaper in Eatonville, Florida. In The Advocate, what you can see is African-Americans like Gus fighting back against this sort of like white imagination about what black people are. Like you can see him reporting sort of like industrious middle-class African-Americans doing things like starting literary societies or like traveling to see friends or, you know, celebrating things like Emancipation Day and a lot of coverage on the creation of the sort of black community. In 1906, Henderson began publishing the Florida Recorder Republican, a newspaper intended for the African-American residents of Orlando. Through the platform of the newspapers The Advocate and The Florida Recorder, Gus Henderson gave a voice to the African-American residents of Central Florida. This, this period from the 1880 to 1900 is a period where African-Americans are continually trying to counter a uh, rising tide of, of anti-Black feeling and action uh, across the South, and increasingly are doing so with every tool that they have access to. And newspapers are an important part of that. Like, there's a Black print culture that is attempting to, just as it had prior to the end of uh, slavery, to articulate a Black position sort of point at good policy and good actions on the parts of white people, but you know, I promote a kind of respectability. And I think one of the things about the one part advocate is that you can sort of see a kind of white, black collaboration, but you also see a kind of black middle class aspiration, right? That the sort of like importance of place and identity and, and like black geographies as, as a way to sort of like demonstrate citizenship. So like the celebrations around things like Juneteenth, right, for instance, or Emancipation Day and things like that. Those are all examples of like black people sort of acting out their citizenship as Americans in public spaces and demonstrating to themselves and to their white counterparts that they're citizens too. For Florida Frontiers, I'm Holly Baker, public history coordinator for the Florida Historical Society and manager of the Rivard Museum of History and Natural Science in Cocoa. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Ben DiBiase and Holly Baker. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. 
I'm Ben Broke-Markle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Department of State Division of Historical Resources and the State of Florida. It's also made possible by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in O'Galley, celebrating pioneer history, the natural environment, and women's history. Available for weddings and events at rossiterhousemuseum.org.